Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network. It is a collection of websites that you can advertise on if you want to reach bookish people on the internet, if you want to reach... People who like to read, people who like art. If you want to talk to those people on the internet, get a message to those people, go to litbreaker.com and find out how you can advertise on some of the best culture sites on the web. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Paris Review, Large Hearted Boy, the list goes on. Litbreaker.com. Go there. Learn. Litbreaker.com. Litbreaker. It's an online advertising network for bookish people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. Just everybody. One this right. is Brad Listy. Right. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles, California. My guest today, for the third time, is Amelia Gray. She has a new novel out called Isadora, available in a beautiful hardcover edition from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Amelia Gray coming up momentarily. It has been uh, a very sad few days here at the Other People Podcast. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, you're aware of the fact that my dog Walter died on Friday, May 19th, unexpectedly, very suddenly, after choking on a bagel. He, uh, <clears throat> he was in, uh, the kitchen and I wasn't there, but I guess my son, well, you know, was eating a bagel threw part of it on the floor. The dog got it, gobbled it down. It got caught in his throat. I was upstairs. I heard shouting. I was told that the dog was choking. I ran downstairs. The dog was choking. My wife was trying to give him the Heimlich maneuver. It was gnarly. Drove him barefoot to the vet, running red lights. He was still alive when we got him there, but he uh, died on the table as they were trying to remove the bagel from his uh, throat. He was a few days shy of his 10th birthday. So all of this happened in a span of about 10 minutes on Friday morning. 
I'm getting ready for work. And by the way, I have a day job now. <laughs> it's going to make doing this podcast a little bit more logistically complicated, but I now work in the virtual reality industry as a writer. I took that jump. Somewhat exciting. But uh, that, you know, I'm getting ready for work. I have a real job. And in a matter of 10 minutes, my dog died. I, I'm still surprised by it. I can't believe that it happened. And it sounds cliche because it is, you know, the fragility of life. Here one moment, gone the next. At any moment, any one of us, our number could be up, you know? That's what it reminds you of. And I also feel bad because I wasn't always uh, extremely nice to this dog. Uh, I gave him a lot of shit, you know, because he, really, he was a really emotionally needy dog. For those of you who met him, he would lick you uh, neurotically obsessively, like not in a way like, you know, if you, if you had just met him, if it was, if it was the first time you ever met Walter and you really like dogs, then I guess it could be endearing. But if you're around him on a regular basis, this is a dog who would like lick your shin obsessively for six hours without stopping. And he would be completely happy. And maybe that sounds good to you. I don't know, but it drove me up the wall. He was a nervous dog, just inherently anxious as an animal. <laughs> I swear to God, it was nothing we did. He came this way out of the box. Uh, we got him from these people in Oklahoma, but we met them in Denver. I flew to Denver to get Walter. I remember it. And I met this guy. He was a, like a very kind of a hillbilly from Oklahoma. And uh, he had this French bulldog puppy in a, you know, a little dog carrier. He was in a uh, RV, you know, and I met him at the airport and he gave me Walter and I, uh, I flew home with him. I flew to Denver, picked up the dog at the airport and flew home. This was when my wife and I had just gotten married. Walter was our wedding present. So, you know, you feel bad. I felt bad uh, right after he died. I'm, sa I'm standing over him. And I'm saying to myself, well, why wasn't I nicer to this dog? I really did love him. But he bugged the shit out of me. <laughs> and I miss him, you know? It sucks to lose dogs. So that's what happened to me. My dog choked on a fucking bagel and died on Friday morning. I'm texting my boss. Hey, uh, by the way, my dog just choked and died. I'm going to be a little late. And uh, my boss was like, don't worry about it. Just take care of shit and uh, we'll see you Monday. So I make the arrangements uh, for cremation and, uh, you know, I'm settling up with the veterinarian. It's like, what, 350 bucks. 
yes, we would like the ashes. You know, this is like my dog Merlin. When my dog Merlin died, it was the first dog that I'd ever really been around that died. And he was, and Merlin and I were extremely close. And yet when he died, I did not, uh, I did not ask for his remains, which is a little bit strange. I remember walking out of the vet, it was on Santa Monica Boulevard, and I was so distraught. They were like, do you want the remains? And I was like, no, like it's over. Like I, I, you know, and I just, I didn't ask for his remains. I still feel bad about that, that I didn't get his remains to like properly scatter them or do something. He was just sent to the crematorium and that was it. But it wasn't, you know, I was just too upset. So with Walter, I asked, I said, yes, we would like his remains, you know, his cremains in a uh, urn. I paid for that. And then I came home, I tried to work a little bit. And then my wife and I were like, what are we going to do? We got to get out of town. So we, we were like packed up the car. We're going to take the kids out of town for the weekend. We're going to pick our daughter up from school. We're going to break the news, but then we're just going to take off as a uh, diversion. So that was fun. I had to go pick up my six-year-old daughter at school. She climbs into the car. She's all happy. She's a little surprised because I'm there. She's not expecting to see me. And uh, it's like, you know, she's like, hi. And then, like, you know, the door closes, and I immediately I blurt it out. I'm like, I'm really sorry, honey. We have good news and bad news. We're leaving town. We're going to do something fun for the weekend, but your dog died. something like that and she was obviously very upset she starts crying it's a lot for her to take you know and it just it breaks your heart when you're a parent to see your kids processing things like this you know things that you know that they're going to have to deal with but you're just trying to put it off you know just loss and mortality and the brut- and the brutalities of life. You know, because we didn't hide anything from him. We're like, he choked on a bagel. It was unexpected. And uh, thank God she wasn't there. Like, thank God. I can't underscore this enough. It was gnarly. It was really hardcore. He was choking. He was terrified. He was pooping while my wife was trying to give him the Heimlich maneuver. Like, I don't mean to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to make everybody miserable, but it was really sad and hard and gross, you know, (laughs) it's not any way for any person or dog or any creature to go. And it wasn't his time either. You know, he was, he was healthy. He was neurotic and anxious and healthy, even though he was almost 10 years old. And he choked on a fucking bagel, and ten minutes later, he was dead. So, we get in the car, we're driving south, we're on the 405, it's a Friday afternoon, traffic is shit. My daughter is crying in the back seat, my son, who is not yet two, is oblivious, thank God. Thank God neither of them saw what happened. Otherwise, we'd be in therapy. And uh, my daughter 
while we're stuck in a traffic jam, starts asking questions one after the other. Daddy, what's going to happen to Walter now? Uh, well, honey, he's going to go to the uh, crematorium, and uh, we're going to get his remains, and we're going to have a nice ceremony, and uh, we're going to be able to say our goodbyes. What do you mean, his remains? Well, honey, that means they're going to, you know, we're going to get his ashes and we're going to be able to sprinkle his ashes like on the beach or something, somewhere that he liked to go, you know, or in our backyard or something, and it'll be very nice. Daddy, does that mean, can I, can I keep some of his ashes? Well, yeah, sure, honey, you can keep some of his ashes. We'll put some in a little, uh, you know, a little jar that you can keep. Meanwhile, like traffic is horrendous. Like we're in like bumper to bumper parking lot traffic on a like a five lane freeway, just inching forward at a crawl on a Friday afternoon. Daddy, yeah. Are they gonna burn Walter? Well, yeah, honey, when they cremate, uh, uh, you know, a dog's body, when a dog dies, they, you know, they, they burn the dog, yes, they, they, you know, that's how you make ashes. Well, where do they burn him? Uh, you know, there's like a big oven, honey, they put the, you know, they put the dog in, in an oven. Daddy? Yes. Are they going to burn Walter's eyeballs? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, honey, they burn all of, all of him when they put him in the oven. And then you can kind of extrapolate, you know. about an hour of this in bumper-to-bumper traffic on a Friday afternoon in a state of shock and trauma. Trying to keep your shit together as a parent and represent in the best possible way. It's funny, too. My daughter asked me... (laughs) She asked me, she's like, is there a... Because she goes to an Episcopal school... Like, I'm not, my wife and I are not religious, but we send our daughter to a uh, religious school. So she gets religious training, you know, all this Jesus, uh, you know, all this stuff. And she's, uh, you know, she's deep into it. So she asks me as we're driving on the 405, she says, uh, you know, Dad, is there a Jesus dog? Was there a Jesus dog that got like nailed to the cross, but it was a dog and then it died and then it came and it rose back up? (laughs) I said, what are you talking about? She's like, you know, like Jesus, he was nailed to the cross and then he rose back up. 
And what I've told my daughter repeatedly since she was able to discuss such things, you know, however, uh, in, in however rudimentary a way, I've always told her, like, God is everything. That's my answer. God is everything. And there's no such thing as death. And the example I've always given her is uh, the example that Thich Nhat Hanh always gives, which is that, you know, it's like when you look up at the sky and you see a cloud, or the, the sky is cloudy, and then the next day you look up and the sky is blue, you don't mourn and cry because the cloud died. You understand that the cloud turned into rain and became flowers and crops and trees and fell into the river that runs out into the sea. That's all I've ever told her. So I'm like, what are you talking about with this Jesus stuff? What are you, what are these people teaching you? Yes, there was a Jesus dog. That is true. I hope there was a Jesus dog. But I'm trying to tell my daughter, like, look, there's no such thing as death. Walter is like the cloud that fell from the sky and became rain and turned into the trees and their flowers. But it still sucks when your dog dies. And that's all you can tell your kid, you know? It's like the best I can do anyway. I should also add that, uh, you know, about 15 minutes before we got to where we were going, my daughter was like, uh, mommy, daddy. Yes. Can we get a new dog? <laughs> The body is not even cold. Anyway, Walter, I love you, man. I'm sorry we couldn't save you. We tried our best. Thank you for being such a good dog. I memorialized you on the podcast. We loved you so much. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Amelia Gray. 
Her new novel is called Isadora, available now from Farrar Strauss in Giroux. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the wonderful Amelia Gray. Yeah, this garage is also a lot better and less creepy than the last garage, <laughs> which where I legitimately thought you were going to murder me <laughs> just once or twice. I had uh that was a very it was like it was almost pitch black <laughs> for people who have not been in that garage. There were legitimate there was legitimately a hornet's nest like in the garage. Yeah, it was very waspy. It was very waspy. There were it was very hot. There mm. was absolutely no ventilation right. or climate control. Right. There were things hanging from the ceiling. Yeah, there might have been asbestos. I remember hooks. Yes. You know, like it was a, it was not a place that you would want to spend a lot of time and Mm-mm. you would be shocked uh you know by some of the big name literary artists who came through that garage including right. amelia gray <laughs> that's true that's true it was an honor absolute... i remember bill clegg showed up and like a, he like had like a tweed blazer on <laughs> and it was like it's, it's it, it not was, blazer weather no it was like 100 <laughs> degrees it was 100 degrees was he charming about it he was polite oh but i think he was like what the fuck yeah. am i doing here and I don't blame him. He got his agent on the phone and then his phone started ringing and he was like, what the fuck is going on here? I think I misread the invitation to the other people podcast. But now, you know, now at least we have some degree of climate control and uh, we have a more comfortable space and it's good to have you here. Congratulations on Isadora. Thank you. I want to start by asking you about this because, um, and now is a, as good a time. I'm going to confess some things about my own creative life okay. that parallel yours. Uh, you have Isadora, uh, Isadora rolling out now. Mm. It's a book that has just so much sadness in it. Mm. Uh, I wrote a book that has so much sadness in it that I just pulled from the market. What? And it's mine. Oh. <laughs> and it's about me. Oh. Um, and I've been talking about it on this show for a long time. People don't know this, but like when I sent it out, I told my agent, I said, I don't want to know anything. Just tell me if someone buys it. And then like every once in a while, she'd be like, yeah, you know, people are just, it's just too sad. Basically was the gist. Right. And it was me. Wow. Because <laughs> it's a very autobiographical book. It's about all the shit that we've been going through with regard to uh, fertility issues and then having a child who is dealing with health issues and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And I finally was just like, like there might still be one straggling publisher who's reviewing it and maybe they'll make a huge offer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I kind of told my agent, I was like, you know what? I, I think, I think I just, let's just put it to rest for a while. Yeah. I want to like press pause at least mm-hmm. and think about it. And it's a surprising response that I have because I put so much into it. I know that it's the best thing I've ever written in terms of the effort that I put into it, in terms of the quality of the prose but I totally get why someone would read it and be like, this is ultra depressing mm-hmm. and pathetic. Oh, like not pathetic, like not a pathetic piece of writing, but it just, it's a, it leaves you with that feeling. Mm-hmm. And the reason I know that is because I lived it. Yeah. yeah. And it's really hard to take experiences that are just brutal in life and to somehow elevate them into literary art that people can read and find some degree of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, not transcendence necessarily, but like, you got to find something in it that is redeeming, like some redemption right? or something. And so you wrote or this meaning, I guess. I don't know. But, I'm, I'm sure yours had plenty of that. I would hope, but like at the same time, 
again, I lived through it and, yeah. and I feel like there is like just a sort of like existential, like, uh, you mm-hmm. know, like well, I was trying good. to grapple with it mm-hmm. and, and it's really hard to do honestly without, I don't know. I was not able to like be like, and then there's the rainbow bridge and, right. you know, and so wh- why don't you give people, cause I think a lot of people listening don't know who is Dory Duncan is mm-hmm. and don't understand what the context is that we're dealing in here. So why don't you give like a brief summary of her? Okay. Brief summary of Isadora Duncan. <clears throat> she was, some people call her the mother of modern dance. Uh, she, she was born in 1877. Uh, she, um, uh, had a very kind of independent spirit, traveled the world, had many lovers, had, uh, this very free, freewheeling life, uh, had two children with two different lovers. And uh, when she was 37, at kind of the height of her artistic powers, uh, her two children drowned in an accident. Um, and it was they were in France. It was just one random afternoon in April, and and they were gone. What and, happened? The card felt like rolled into the Seine, right? Right. Yeah. They. Um, she, she Isadora and her and Paris Singer, who is her her lover the and the the father of her youngest child um they were at lunch with the the two children and the nurse um and then the nurse and the two children went back home with the driver of the car um Isadora went to her studio Paris went back to work and and the driver um I guess the car stalled on the banks of the river and had a very low bank and no um guardrails and it still doesn't um uh, in many places a very fast and cold river uh, and the um, and the driver got out to to crank the engine, and it just leapt forward and and went into the water. And it was moving to the the water too fast; it was too deep. And and I think they got him out about an hour later. Uh, <sighs> it was too late. Yeah. So an awful story, right? Like the awfulest, the awfulest of stories. And why did this? Why did this story and this woman grab you? Why did that appeal to me? Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess. Well, I, I I think there was some element of the the distance between that and my life. There have been, let's see, and I'm still thinking about your about your story too, because there's something about distance between between an event and your experience of it. And uh, I've never been the kind of person that can write about myself directly, um, but I'm always writing about myself obliquely and weird um, metaphor or symbol, or I'm exploring what it would be like to, to have a child, which is something I'm, I'm always been curious about and, and what that kind of like the, the loss of a, of children seems like the, the most existential variety of loss that you could possibly experience. So, um, so I'm curious about that. Yeah, you know? no, I, I mean, I kind of glean that. And I was right. thinking of your book and I was thinking of your work and thinking of mine and mm-hmm. thinking like, I just didn't have enough distance or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. maybe if this is happening to you and yet there are people who go through, like, like I think of their, what was that book? It was called like the wave or whatever. And it was about the woman who lost like her entire family in the tsunami. Oh my God. And wrote like a lovely, like mm. achingly, like, you know how they use these terms, sure. like achingly beautiful memoir or whatever. Like some people can do it and they mm. can like find like the gold inside of the heartache. And I don't know if that's because 
they just can or because they maybe had more time mm. separating them from the event. Maybe it's a time thing. Maybe. Yeah. It's just, it's really hard. And sure. yet, as I say this, and I don't want to make this all about me, but it's been on my mind a lot. I am surprisingly unemotional about it. Mm. it. You know, it's a little upsetting, but like not to the degree that I would have thought it would have been. Mm-hmm. And I don't regret for a second going through the process of writing the book, which was excruciating. Wow. I feel like a, I feel much better having written it Yeah. in the way that, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of crude metaphors, but like getting it out of you <laughs> and like the, the, the extended process of having to analyze these really difficult emotions, mm-hmm. moments, questions, mysteries, just awfulnesses, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. did you get anything similar from writing about Isadora? Like, like staring, cause like writing a book is a, an extended form of deep concentration mm-hmm. and you were entertaining really dark shit mm-hmm. and having to like, look it in the eye to a degree that most people would never, um, invite, you know what I'm saying? Like, did you sure. get something from it? Yeah. <laughs> Was there a purpose? <laughs> well, yeah. Or did you, did you walk yeah. away a little bit the wiser? Like, yeah. did you say, well, okay, well, you know, now I've stared down my fear because there is, yeah. I think something in writing about somebody who's gone through something like this, it's a process of facing one's fears, uh-huh. right? E- yes. And, and facing one's fears through a really interesting character because, um, I don't know how the I don't know how the the reception of Isadora is going to be. We're recording this the night before it comes out, which is wow, very exciting. Look at the Isadora Eve. I know, <laughs> um, but um, she's going to squeeze down some chimneys tomorrow. <laughs> but um, uh, but but I wonder if if the book is kind of an interesting litmus test the way people read her as a character because she's. Um, she's such a singular character. She's such an interesting woman. She lives without limits. She is also an incredible narcissist, uh, who dismisses other people's art, uh, completely out of hand and maybe kind of out of laziness. And wait a uh, minute. I think she's me. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, there, she's, you know, she, she, she creates this narrative to serve herself. Um, and, but like before or after the death of her children or just all the way along, I would say all the way along, all the way on through. And in the way that somebody who is incredibly successful and, uh, and a trailblazer in their field and among their gender or whatever, um, has to be ruthless in a way. And that, that has always made me uncomfortable. The Uh notion of this, not necessarily with respect like, like not in an isolated way with respect to gender, yeah. but just in re- with respect to, I think in particular, the creative arts, especially living in Los Angeles and mm-hmm. feeling that like, like everyone doing it. Right. And then also doing a show like this, where I kind of exist at the nexus between art and commerce. Mm. You know, I meet all these authors doing publicity tours mm-hmm. and everyone's like, you know, and I, kind and of vibrating. everyone's kind of vibrating mm-hmm. with like ambition and it's like trying to make peace with that, mm-hmm. like trying to make peace with like, cause there is something great about ambition, mm-hmm. like wanting to be great, wanting to make really cool shit. Right. But at the same time, you know, the, the way that that can sort of pair away, uh, other concerns that yeah. might, that might like your humanity, like your humanity, <laughs> like that's what I was going to say. Things that should take precedence. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like the singular vision you have to have and right. like this 
this sort of inward turn, this sort of focus on what I want and what I'm doing. And like, I have been guilty of that in my artistic career for most of my adult life right? to some degree, probably not to the degree of Isadora Duncan or some other people, but yeah, I mean, well, and there has to be a narcissistic self-obsession to do to make art, I think, because there's only so much time in the day and uh, assuming that you, assuming you have, you know, people in your life, friends or family or, or boyfriends or girlfriends, like they're, your, your choice to kind of turn inwardly kind of is, is a choice that, that maybe separates you from, from them. Right. I, I've always, yeah. And they have to like, and like, I find too, that the discipline it requires, especially the more that you take on in life. Um, with regard to uh, responsibilities to other people, uh-huh. like, I, like having a family uh-huh. or a podcast or a podcast, <laughs> you have to, uh, become very disciplined. Mm-hmm. You have to be disciplined anyway, but the more that it, like comes at you in terms of life responsibilities, the more and more and more I have found you have to get regimented about your schedule mm-hmm. and it can get to the point where if things are thrown off by the littlest bit, you know, everything can get fucked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so then you get very protective of your time and you right. get like, you, I can feel myself getting rigid and I'm like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Like right. I gotta, I, I have to soften. I have a, I have kids. Like right. this is the life is going to be an intrusion and they're going to come in the room when you don't want them to. And like, right. you know what I'm saying? Like sure. you just have to sort of roll with it. And so trying to make some peace between the demands of life and the demands that caring for other people uh, puts upon you mm-hmm. in the best possible way mm-hmm. with your artistic interests and ambitions right. is a delicate balancing act. And then I and then I wonder about you know a particular character who is if okay if Isadora's um, if her legacy is due in part to this kind of narcissistic self obsession, um, how would she look at losing? children in a way that might be different from from somebody who didn't have that sort of dysfunction right you know and so her and so paris singer who is her her lover he by the way paris singer i know right (laughs) you can't make this shit up i wish i could (laughs) i know i i read this at cal arts and and somebody asked the for for the first time i read it at cal arts and someone asked um like, uh, it's such an interesting symbolic choice to name him Paris Singer. Why, why did you make that decision? Because the book takes place in Paris, and it seems like, is that what you're doing? And I was like, his name is literally Paris Singer, and it was a pain in the ass, all right? It was a pain in the ass, because I had to sometimes be like, the city in which he lived, right. Mr. Singer lived there. <laughs> but he, but he, was the, he was the son of Isaac Singer, and he was incredibly wealthy, and, and so he had his own kind of it's like Isadora has this incredible sense of 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 legacy and Paris is kind of in a legacy hangover his father invented the freaking sewing machine and so he's he's got this passive income and like no sort of bearing on life except to make strange decisions and buy gigantic art and then and then Isadora's sister Elizabeth uh, is supposed to be like the she's the kind of the practical side. I think of 
Elizabeth and Isidore as kind of two halves of my brain, really. Right. It's like the practical and the and the artistic, the self obsessed and the and the obsessed with others and and this kind of strange balance, I guess, is trying to strike it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, if you yeah. can. And I find too like uh I think I've thought about this a lot since I was a kid because I had friends growing up maybe to a weird degree like the the first person i met the first friend i ever made in the towns that i lived in the two principal towns that i lived in both experienced catastrophic loss oh wow so when i was growing up my buddy my first best friend lost his little brother mm. just to a random like staph infection like he got like the flu and then it like just grew into something wow. and he was 9 years old and he was dead <sighs> Mm-hmm. And then my other buddy, uh, the first guy I ever met when I moved to Indiana, his father was hit by an airplane. What? This was before cell phones. He was a, uh, a salesman and he stopped off at a Ramada Inn near the airport to make a sales call on a payphone. Mm-hmm. And a U.S. Air Force pilot was doing a test flight of, or, you know, a routine flight in an Air Force jet, experienced engine failure, uh, failure ejected from the plane and the empty plane ghost road into the face of a Ramada Inn just as he was walking out. Jesus. And then, uh, a little over five years later, then that widowed his mother with four young boys. Five years later, the eldest of those boys died of lymphoma. Okay. And then, I mean, like, you know, and then like my next door, like one of our neighbors on our cul-de-sac, I came home from school on the bus one day and she went inside and found her mother dead, strangely of a heart attack, like yeah. in like her late forties. Oh yeah. So I like, had all that the... happened to a friend of mine, brain aneurysm, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, and like this stuff right. is happening yeah. around you and you're trying to process it. And I think whenever you're in proximity to grief, you're watching the grieving and I always call it sad authority. Huh. Like people, remember like people when you, when you were a kid somebody died in their family, like you almost like had like respect for them. Like it was like, Oh, well they know, they know what it's the like, shit yeah. that's coming to me. Right. They already know. They got it. And they, they have like this sad authority. Wow. They, they have the sadness authority or whatever. Yeah. And yet I'm always fascinated by the different ways in which people process death and grieve. Mm-hmm. And it's undeniable that some people, something really catastrophic like that happens to them and they crumble. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are certain families that when uh, a catastrophe hits, they come together mm-hmm. and they're str- the bond is strengthened. Mm-hmm. And there are other families where a catastrophe hits and they, they pull apart. Right. You know what I'm saying? I'm and like, there's kind of no rhyme or reason to it. It feels like, and, and I've always like, since I was a kid, I've always thought like, how will I respond yeah. if the shit hits the fan? Like, uh-huh. will I be strong like yeah. you know like open question right you know and like isadora like that's a perfect example of like your the car rolls into the river right. with your kid like what how how do you go on what do you do and how do you how do you have the spiritual strength or whatever you call it to be productive for the rest of your life mm-hmm. and to make to go through life with any degree of like energy and happiness right like was that a question that was on your mind yeah of course <laughs> of course yeah right <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's the nightmare scenario, right? I, I, I I have this strange, (laughs) I haven't, I haven't ever said this out loud. Uh, I have this strange thing I I do every night where when I'm falling asleep, I, I say to myself, you know, what is, I wonder what's the worst pain I'll ever feel in my life. And if I've already felt it. 
Hmm. Or if it's coming. Yeah. Because there's only two options, right? Uh, Meaning what? Like death or... No, no. I mean, I mean, either I've already felt the worst pain I've felt in my life. Or, or it's it, coming. It's coming. Right. <laughs> because I'm not in it then. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that's been, that's a, that's a real existential, um, sorry to your listeners, but that's I, how you go to bed at night. I mean, I can't help it. <laughs> I don't know what to do. It takes sleeping pills. Yeah. I, I, lately I've been trying to invert it to say like, um, if I've felt the, have I felt the greatest joy I'll feel in my life or, you know, has that already happened or is it coming? And I, and that kind of gets me thinking more about the positive side of things. Yeah. I, but it, I've, I've done the pain thing for years and the joy thing it just occurred to me like a couple of weeks ago. So. <laughs> no. Ladies and gentlemen, Amelia Gray is on the upswing. We're just doing great. Everything's, yeah. Everything's coming up roses. I, can't, I know. But you know, I feel, I feel like, I mean, living with what I live with, uh, like my son being chronically ill mm. and, you know, we have a lot of question marks mm. and a lot of hope, but like a lot of question marks and it's like this ever present worry and pain mm. when you're a parent to a child like that. But like interspersed with it, uh, is like the greatest joy. Mm. And like, I think that's kind of the way the life works is that like. I don't know. I guess, I mean, yeah, there are, there's going to be a unique instance where you're going to feel that moment. I think there's not, there, there, there's a legitimacy to your question that you ask yourself, but I think in the, in like the broader scope of life, it's like some weird mis mishmash. Right. You know what I'm saying? Where like, mm -hmm. like sometimes like within the same five minutes, I think I go through both mm. and mm -hmm. maybe that's unique to my situation or maybe that's just the way life tends to operate. But you think of like having like really funny moments at funerals and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of times there's crossover. Sure. Sure. <laughs> you know? sure, sure. It crosses over. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a friend of mine described, uh, describes watching her child sleep and she feels this, she feels this animal instinct. And she said, um, uh, the closest I could, the closest emotion I could say is love. Um, but I, but it's not that it's, no. it's like love and like, like, like there's yeah, some yeah. kind of like, uh. right. for those of you, for those of you who are not here in the garage, which is all of you, uh, Amelia just basically pantomimed like an, uh, kind of like an animal attacking, <laughs> but it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. It's like, it's like that moment. Remember that scene in punch drunk love where, uh, Adam Sandler is talking to Emily Watson. That's her name. Uh -huh. Right. Uh. And he's like, I just want to like scoop your eyes out and eat them and, and eat them. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's like a violence. It's like a, vi there's a violence inherent yeah. in like that really deep, yeah. like love. And, uh, yeah. do you, do you know Zach Dodson? Yes. Yes. From, from Featherproof Books. From Featherproof Books. Yeah. He, he and his, um, sis, he and his family would call it the Cheenies. Okay. Whereas there's this feeling of like, you know, when you, when there's a baby chick and you want to put it in your mouth yeah. or like there's something really adorable and you, and, and it's like one, one example is he's sitting on the couch, um, with his sister, I think. And, and the two of them are watching this adorable infant playing on the rug and, and his sister goes, I just want to drive a fucking car through the window. <laughs> <laughs> like, and that's the genies. Yeah. That's the genies. I mean, you know, it's like. I get it. I get it. And I think, uh, hopefully everybody has the Cheenies at some point in their life. It's yeah. the, that's the best it can get, I think. And, uh, there's also, I think there's like a, a different, there's like a more docile side to the Cheenies where 
there are these moments that are very fleeting as all moments are, uh, for me as a parent and as a spouse. But if I'm being honest, like, especially as a parent, I think it's more vital in a person with kids. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like totally. adult, adult to adult love is wonderful and deep and rich, but like <laughs> I want a website called adult. To adult love. <laughs> well, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Adult to adult, but you know what I'm saying? Sure. Like, like versus like the, the parental love with right. this biological child parent thing, like, uh, where I can just be like on a Sunday afternoon on the couch and we're watching like Moana or something. And I've got both my kids mm-hmm. and it's like, Oh, like mm. everything's perfect. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And, and I'll just like notice it for a second. And then it's, it's as soon as I notice it, it like flutters away. Like mm. when you let the air out of a balloon, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. but, uh, that to me is the closest I can come to n- knowing it. Yeah. You know, it's very curious. It's very curious, but it makes sense. I mean, you know, it's like human biology. And, uh, I think especially nowadays in the world that we're living in the decision to be a parent, you know, I'm weighing it all against what's going on. And mm-hmm. I'm weighing it against my knowledge of what's going on. And it's like, if I look at what is happening with Donald Trump and I look at what's happening with the Republican party in particular, I knew this was coming mm-hmm. in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Like I knew it was really unhealthy before I had kids. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay. And I made the decision to have kids in spite of all this. Yeah. It's on you, man. It's on me. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, you know, I do think of it that way. I'm like, God, what, what world are we giving these people? Like, was it responding? You know, and mm-hmm. you can have that whole ethical conversation with yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you ever think like that? About what world I'm giving my invisible children? Well, just <laughs> if you ever to contemplate mm-hmm. having kids, mm-hmm. like, is it a world worth bringing more people into? Oh yeah. No, I, th- I, I guess I think about that and wonder about that. Um, I don't know. I think, um, for every kid that's raised with, a you know, with a spine and a heart and, and with love for <clears throat> other people and for the world, I think there's a, there's a chance that that kid can, can do something to, to save us. <laughs> well, and it's like idiocracy too. I mean, I, I think that there's something to that where people of, um, I mean, you know, I don't want to pat myself on the back too hard because I'm as fucked up as anybody, but like we we're trying, we're trying real hard mm. to do it right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like to, to raise good people. And, mm-hmm. uh, I'd like to think we're doing a, a decent job of it, but there are a lot of people out there just having kids like willy nilly. Sure. You know, that whole premise. I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, we gotta, we can't just seed that. We can't just seed the, the, the playing field to these people. Otherwise we're screwed. You know, like you have to have people of good conscience procreating. So maybe that's like a good rationale. Mm. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, and fix the education system for the rest. And, and exactly. Mm-hmm. Like I talked to uh, Ron Curry on this show and was addressing similar things, you know, like this like existential concern about the world that we're living in and what the answers are. And he said something that I thought was really wise, which is that there's no quick fix. It's a slow fix. And the first thing I think that he said he would do is try to fix education. Mm. And you have to let the process unfold over many years, you know, mm-hmm. but like if absent having an educated populace and providing an education, especially to people... Mm-hmm who otherwise wouldn't have, you know, access or the resources to access a good education. Like absent that, there's no, what do we, what do we, right. There's no hope. Right. I, 
I think I think you're right. I think that it's I think it's best if and we've talked about this if everyone kind of picks the thing that they really feel passionately about fixing or helping people fix or like helping be not so fucking catastrophically bad and right go towards that that's it run pick one thing run for hell yeah yeah Mm -hmm. but i mean and like so do you have a thing do you know what it is i guess my thing is universal representation in los angeles (laughs) okay but like no but like that's great that because i love that you said that because that's very specific very specific thing what does that mean it means that anybody in detention in in uh, in uh, an undocumented state um, can have a lawyer, and that's that's all that means. That's all I care about. Yeah. And, that, and it's sort of, you know, whether regardless of what your your uh, your crime is or what you're convic- you're convicted of or accused of, that you would have someone represent you in court against the against you know, the, the government, which always has a lawyer. And, yeah. and that's just, I think that just having UREP would lead to people feeling like, okay, if I get dragged in by an, an insane kleptocratic police state, you know, there's somebody that is there who can speak English, you right. know, there's somebody right. that, who, who can, can advocate, who can advocate for me. Cause imagine absent that what a miserable hell that would be. It's miserable. It's an, it's an incredibly extended process. It's an incredibly expensive process. And just inhumane. And it's inhumane and it's freaking wild. But good for you. And it's like, just, you know, look for a fire that really bothers you and try yeah, to put it out. Try to put it out. And it, and I think for, for me anyway, it's it really has helped kind of dull the, the utter panic about everything, which is right. And I, I, I do have that kind of fear that like our, our climate change shit will just doom the planet within it, within our lifetimes. However, um, there's just, I, there's just one thing that I really just, why is it, why is it that uh, universal representation like grabbed a hold of you is because you live in Los Angeles and you have like proximity to people who are being rounded up or like, yeah, I mean, being in a border state is part of it. Being born in Arizona is part of it and and being born in, in, you know, Tucson, Arizona, which is, which is pretty, pretty far down there. My parents raised me with this kind of stuff, but yeah, I guess, um, Maybe the most recent thing I was at a I was at a meeting of the community coalition right after the election and and uh, which is a, it's a group in South LA and everybody broke into smaller groups and and there was just kind of six of us talking about how we felt about things what things were what what's up with our emotions after just the election group therapy just a little group therapy but but yeah. not uncalled for indeed you and mean... yeah and and there was a kid there like a like a young like hispanic kid he's like 17 years old and he's like i'm just terrified of my dad running a red light i'm just scared he's gonna run a fucking those red light. those stories bust me up like yeah. in like like kids who are worried that their parents are gonna get taken away like like yeah. when I hear that and then I think about Jeff Sessions and I think about the, it makes me so fucking angry. Like it's ludicrous. Yeah. It's ludicrous and it's so cruel and it's yeah. no way for a kid to grow up. It makes me and and you know this has happened. People need to realize to thousands of people. Oh yeah. Thousands of families have been destroyed mm-hmm. by this presidency already. Well, and to be clear, felons not families is an Obama. <laughs> right. Thing well, too, Obama so deported just... a ton of people. Oh, sure. Like more like he broke the record for Absolutely. deportations. Absolutely. And, and and so like this distinction between like good and bad immigrants is like is something about America that I think is is a little bit is a little bit fucked. Well, and, what was it? Like there was a tweet from David Simon who's like the guy who created the wire where he was 
there was this young black man who was shot, uh, and it's like, it's been on Twitter. So I'm going to, I'm going to botch it because mm. I don't know enough about the story. And it's one of these things that I just saw like speeding down my Twitter feed, mm. but it's this really good looking young black guy. It's like 20 years old or whatever. He, I want to say he's in the military, but mm-hmm. he was shot and killed. Mm-hmm. And I guess in the news coverage of his death, they said, this was not a thug. Mm-hmm. This was not a thug. He was not a thug. Da, da, da. And David Simon was basically like, when you, when, when you see news outlets, categorizing the deaths of young black men in this way. Like it's a, it's a direct sign of like our racial pathology right. as a country. Yeah. And, no, it's uh, fucked. it's like, like thugs deserve to not get fucking murdered. In right. The right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so you think about, uh, you think about what's happening to people, uh, in the Latina community, other immigrants like just get it, you know, the way that they have been demonized, uh, like well, this is, yeah, this and is, it's just an endemic, and you see like a, when you see a kid being scared, and then you see kind of the, the like the like partition go up over his eyes, and it's like like that's when he's just like fuck, I'm, fuck it, fuck it, right? Like my dad's gonna get fucking deported at any time. What right. do I do? And, and, then, and like, I don't trust. I don't trust. Like like, like there's a certain. Ugh, it's the worst moment, like where you see a kid sort of uh, like the light goes out, mm-hmm. you know, and that innocence goes away yeah. and like the bitterness or the, I don't even know what you call it, but like that comes in. The light goes out. That's a sad moment. That's a sad moment. And uh, I feel like, I don't know. It's just, I, I guess like, I don't know. I don't know enough about it to be able to speak to it with total authority, but it doesn't seem like there was nearly as much cruelty in it, at least outwardly with the deportations that were happening when Obama was president. Like this president just came out and was like, you're gone. Like we're going to build the wall and we're going to, you know, and like it was, it was more overt for sure. Way more overt. And it's like a, and it starts, the culture kind of starts at the top and, and is really fucked and destructive and things are certainly worse. (laughs) Yeah. It creates a permission structure for people who have uh, racial animus to just feel like they have authority to speak and act out with impunity. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay. And you're seeing it. I just drive, I drive through LA flipping off my talk radio all day. Do you listen to bad talk radio? I just listen to, I listen to news radio. I listen to, to 1070 AM, which is like the not, not the, on left or right side kind of stuff yeah but just like listening to quotes and yeah. shit listening to the fucking garbage okay so how deep into twitter are you do you want I, some more i'm on twitter you want like a refill i would um do you do you pay attention to deep twitter and do you pay attention to what is deep twitter <laughs> deep twitter's like like the deep state trump conspiracy like we oh. have the news ahead of time yeah. Like the Louise Menches of the world oh, and the Claude. Yeah. Do you do you get into that? <laughs> I look at those people. It's I do too. And it's like I don't want to be the person who's like buying the the bullshit, but the the deal is is that they have gotten some stuff right. They do seem a little crazy. Mm-hmm. At least like in terms of like trying to read the feed. It's very right. difficult to parse. Right. And yet I think objectively they did break some big news. Like what? Uh like Louise Mensch broke the FISA warrant story, meaning that she knew ahead of the mainstream media that a FISA warrant had been granted to monitor the communications of the Trump campaign and its various operatives. Mm -hmm. I hope I have that right. I have no idea what you're talking about. And then Claude, (laughs) this is how deep into it I am. And then Claude Taylor broke the news 
Unless I, I mean, I could be totally outing myself as a complete nut. No, no, no. But I'm pretty sure Claude Taylor broke the news that there had been uh, grand juries convened in the Eastern District of Virginia and in New York State. So these are like pieces of the puzzle that are actually of significance, Mm -hmm. like from a uh, standpoint of like jurisprudence. Right. You know. I mean, Mensch gets dismissed as a conspiracy theorist a lot, right? Oh, tons. And, and if I you... appreciate that we have a well, we have a left conspiracy theorist. It's very <laughs> right, right, it's kind right. of romantic. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and so I always try to like have some degree of, uh, you know, I'm trying to like not go completely uh, whole hog. On... But part of part, I think part of conspiracy theory is one that there there are elements that that are revealed yeah. that that are in the system that you otherwise feel completely out of control. Um, and that, and that there's some, there's something in simply paying attention. You can, you can glean or gather something that you didn't have before. That's a really fascinating feeling. Well, right? I found, I, f- I have found that Twitter in the age of Trump as a news source and as an information, super um, highway, super <laughs> truly, <laughs> Is is has been uh, incredibly fascinating, yeah, and like way better than the mainstream media. Sure. And so you talk about like a conspiracy theorist or somebody. Have you noticed that Anderson Cooper holds very still now on TV? I think I think I love Anderson Cooper okay. in the sense that I think Anderson Cooper is a good person. Sure. I think like D, I think like if you and I were to have Anderson in the room right now, yeah. And he were able to be like Anderson off the record. We had a couple drinks. We would enjoy Anderson 100% and he would be like... In many ways. Like, so, yeah. <laughs> so the other night, did you see where he said he was talking to like this Trump, you know, advocate on that, that CNN keeps putting on the air. I forget the guy's name, but he was basically like Donald Trump, Donald Trump could take a shit on his desk and you would still oh, think... Oh, yeah. Like he finally broke. He like broke character and God bless him. And uh, then he apologized and yeah, I'm like, dude, yeah. don't apologize. Right. Um, but I think the reason he is holding still, and I think the reason that anybody of conscience in the media must be, uh, having a really difficult time with the protocols of mainstream media or just like journalistic, uh, good behavior. Who's that's a Davinus. Yeah. (laughs) Is that like what? Like, like we are living in surreal times. Right. And so like all the normal reactions and, uh, response procedures just like almost like don't apply. Like right. you're just through the looking glass. And I think Anderson Cooper has been trying to hold it together, but then <laughs> he's put on the air with these people who, no matter what Trump does, like Donald Trump could like, like carve a swastika between his two eyeballs. Mm. And there are people out there who would be like, well, mm-hmm. he likes tattoos. You, you know, know what? What? that's a, that's a Buddhist symbol of that's, peace. Yeah, right. So I guess mean, what? He's very into peace. You just, you, you know, and so I applaud him actually for losing his shit. And I think we need like a Howard Rourke moment almost from mm. somebody who's going to just like somebody, like, I wish that there were a figure like this in our media now. It's so, it's so fractalized that I don't think that there is any kind of central authority in the way that there was back when like, um, What's his name? I'm Dan Rather. Not Dan Rather. The guy before Brian him. Brian Williams. No, even before. Even Ooh, before. Retire, bitch. Like, uh, oh my God. And that's oh, the way it is. Like Cronkite? Yeah, Walter Cronkite. Okay. Who was like America's... <laughs> was that your Cronkite impression? Yeah, and I that's the way it is. Nasty. But he was, uh, he was like America's grandpa. And like everybody <laughs> trusted him. Uh-huh. He's the most trusted name in news. Yeah. Like nowadays, it's like, well, it depends what your persuasion is. Like right. for some people, Sean Hannity is the most trusted name in news. Sure. And then it's Rachel Maddow is the most trusted name uh, in news, you know? Uh, 
Yeah. And uh, and so you're in going to Twitter. You're trying to you're trying to jack into the source. I'm trying to jack into the source, but like like you were kind of I think you were saying this is that there's much to be gleaned from the conversation mm-hmm. around the conspiracy almost. And so like I'll find myself like like Louise Mensch will come out or Claude Taylor or Justin Hendricks or Caroline O or Sarah Kenzior. Oh, she is not a fucking conspiracy. She is not. And like, you know what? That's a very important distinction. <laughs> no, but but I mean, like, these are the people who are in my deep Twitter yeah. like universe. Like, these right. are the people that I'm going to to try to figure out what the fuck is going on. Her article, How to Be Your Own Light in the Age of Trump, yeah. is something that I still tell people to read. Yeah. Everyone go read it. And, and uh, um, Write about who you are and what you believe in, because we're in a... Masha Gessen is another person. And so... I don't mean to equate all of these people, as Amelia was kind enough to point out. They're, they're not all the same, right. and they don't all have the same bona fides or bona fides or whatever. But Nobody knows how that's pronounced. No one knows how that's pronounced. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the, the, these are the people that I'm going to well before I'm going to the uh, Anderson Coopers sure. and Rachel Maddows of the world. And what I'm finding is that the conversations on Twitter in the deep threads, like someone will come out and say something. And then there'll be like 600 responses to it. Right. And just like reading that like public conversation Mm -hmm. is, is illuminating to me. Mm -hmm. And I think it helps me in some way, like figure out my own thoughts or it's like, you know, I don't know, weirdly entertaining or disturbing. Yeah. It's weird. After the election, I stopped looking at the daily mail and I started looking down thread on Twitter comments. Mm -hmm. So I, and I feel like you probably did the same thing. And then I just popped into the daily mail to see what was up with those right wing motherfuckers. And they're starting to turn on Trump on Trump. Yeah. Which is kind of great. But like also, I don't know, whatever that maybe they're just, um, what's the word? Um, uh, when you just do the opposite of whatever is successful. I don't know what that word is. Nobody knows. Yeah. But you know, I think that like it's a good question that you raise with regard to when people who were formerly pro-Trump, which is to say like the entire Republican party, they mm-hmm. all just jumped on that wagon once he got the nomination more or less, mm-hmm. except for like, you know, and this is what's weird too, is that it makes strange bedfellows like Bill Crystal mm-hmm. uh, for people who are like political junkies who he's been a mainstay on those oh, Sunday K shows with a K. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He's been a mainstay on the Sunday shows for most of my adult life. Mm-hmm. And like, he was the guy who said like, George W. Bush is great. The Iraq War is great. Sarah Palin's great. Like right. I have, like th- this guy has been wrong about more shit in my lifetime. Like, like grotesquely wrong, and yet he continues to have like this big megaphone in our culture. Yeah, and I abhor him. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And yet he has been anti-Trump from the beginning, and I have found myself like faving his tweets. Uh, like, do you know that? You know what I'm talking? Myself faving him. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, like, I mean, like, I, and I have to in good faith, because I have to say like, Bill, you're getting this right. Like, I don't want to just be uh, a naysayer or mm-hmm. just be anti, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be ugly. Like, listen, I'm, I'm happy that you're saying this. I, it's. What is the word when you believe, when you just are, you're going against whatever the mainstream is saying? Um, I can't engage until uh, we come up with this. Yeah. Word. When you're a, uh, I'm a, I'm a. Oh my God. And I know the word too. This is what scotch does to you, ladies and gentlemen. Let this be a PSA. Just two glasses of scotch. Just a differential or a... um, Contrarian. Contrarian! That's it. (laughs) 
And you know what? It's interesting that you bring up that word because I have known people like this because I like to talk politics. Yeah. Like my, my dad, uh, I remember my dad telling me growing up, like, don't talk politics. Don't talk. What was the other thing? Religion. Or money. All things I love to talk about. Did we have the same dad? Maybe. No. But I, <laughs> Amelia and I are siblings, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I love it. Uh, but no, but I, I truly love to talk about money. Explains I love a lot. to talk about politics and I love to talk about religion. Mm-hmm. And I think that I disagree wholeheartedly with the idea that you should not. I think you should talk about these things more. Hmm. I think yeah. it's actually, and, and, and you know, in a, in a way that is uh, humane and, uh, you know, you don't want to like just have a screaming match at one another. No, we live in fucking America, last I checked. Yeah, we have to have, there has to be more sunlight on these things. There's uh-huh. a reason people don't want to talk about them. Right. And we need dialogue and we need conversation and we need open debate and disagreement. And yeah. like, we need to question and like all of those things bring comfort to me rather uh-huh. than make me unsettled. And, um, I have also found, and I don't know how related this is to what I just said, but when we talk about the word contrarian, that in conversations that I've had uh, about politics over the years, that I've had certain people in my, uh, in my life in this particular department who uh, truly get off on being a contrarian mm-hmm. on any issue. Hmm. And they just like to fuck with you and take, do you know what I'm saying? Like, sure. like no matter what the, no matter what, like it could be climate change and it'll be like, well, actually know. it's good. Actually, <laughs> you know, like, like truly like, uh-huh. like over and over and over again. Yeah. And there are some contrarians who are really fucking smart. Uh, and who's a smart contrarian? Oh God. I mean, I think of like, uh, oh my God, what's her name? She's the Italian. Uh, She's the Italian. Oh my, 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 we're having another, uh, memory moment. Paglia, Camille Paglia. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like somebody who's like a public intellectual, but who always will take, and this is what I found. Like I've tried to like deduce this, but like public intellectuals insofar as they can exist in America, especially when it comes to politics, like if you take really conflicting viewpoints, like if you're the, I'm an atheist conservative, mm. like that's a great thing to <laughs> be. It. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> or like, I'm a pro-life Democrat right. and like all this shit. Like when you go into the public square as an opinionator, right? like that's a great thing to be right. because you automatically get a reaction out of people. Sure. And I think there are certain people who like, that's their MO. But I think, yeah, I agree. Um, but I think a, a really intelligent contrarian is a lot of fun. I am pro that. I, I, and like, this is the thing, like they madden Better me. Better than a fucking like, like, like nimby pimby moderate bullshit peddler. Or, or like a total like ideologue mm. who's in the tank for whatever the team does. Like I'm, right. I'm for the elephants or I'm for the donkeys or you Here. know what I'm saying? Like that sort of political, uh, identification bothers me as well. And Same. so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I'm, yeah, I guess I agree. Like I'm both maddened. Mm-hmm. by people who I think reflexively do the contrarian thing just to get a rise out of people without actually having any real heartfelt belief in what they're saying. Right. But I also am grateful to people who are really um, coming at it with like intellectual rigor and are testing me. Mm-hmm. You know, because I want that. Because yeah. I can, I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody of falling into a false sense of certainty sure. or getting self-righteous. Sure. You know, and it's a, it's a bad place to be. So it's an interesting political environment to live in. 
And we've been talking about politics for three and a half years now. Yeah. I've been talking about politics. This is what I always say about it. I feel like what is happening now is the apotheosis of what has been happening my entire life and which I have been able to feel since the dawn of my political consciousness, which is that the Republican party has become, has been becoming increasingly nihilistic, meaning it doesn't really have any core set of beliefs. It's all about advancing its own power and it's about consolidating wealth for the people who fund it. Mm -hmm. That's what, that's the way it seems to me. Like they, like Donald Trump has proven it. Like when evangelical Christians are voting for Donald Trump, it's like the, the train is off the tracks. No one gives a shit anymore. It's just about getting what you want in some narrow way and fuck everybody else. Like I don't see what it stands for. And I've, I have felt, I think internally that it has been heading this way for my entire adult life or my entire life ever since I guess, you know, like I was, I was born in 75. Reagan comes into power in 80. What about Goldwater? Well, I mean, I think Goldwater was the, he presaged Reagan. Like, mm-hmm. like Goldwater was, was before his time. Right. Like he couldn't win in 64, right. but Reagan could win in 80. I can't believe your deep pull on Goldwater here. What's that? I appreciate it as yeah. an Arizonan. Yeah, right. I understand. You know. <laughs> but, uh, I think people would say, well, what about the Democrats? Mm-hmm. And I'm, and this is what, this is another thing that always bothers me is false equivalences in our politics. It's not equal. Oh yeah, yeah, no, that's always bothered me, man. It'd be fun slash not fun to write a book about about like logical fallacy. That was always kind of a, a a dream to like write a story for each logical fallacy that exists, um, because I'm very interested in them and I'm super tired of seeing them down thread on Twitter. I yeah, guess. like give me an like, example. Do you have an example of one that like is prominent for you? Well, yeah, like. Um, like if if um if the if the democrats had a sexual scandal we would be completely going insane like says somebody who's completely going insane over some kind of republican sexual scandal it's just like fucking you are right. i don't know right like, right what the fuck right <laughs> um yeah i guess that's what that's false equivalent no no that's what is what's the name the other part of me wanting to write about it is wanting to like learn what they are finally once and for all. Yeah. Cause there's like 700 of them. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's tough to decide how to be and it's tough to decide how to behave on social media. It's tough to decide how to behave person to person. Mm. It's tough to decide how to behave within my own family. Sure. Like, you know, my dad who is more conservative I've had great conversations with him. I should say, and uh, I'm very proud of my dad who voted, who has voted mostly Republican for most of his life yet voted for Jerry Brown in, in California, Yeah, voted for Hillary in this last election <laughs> out of a sense of civic duty. I love him. Like there are a lot of people like that in the country who I need to tip my cap to because that's not easy. Yeah. Like when you have a political identity, I have one, you have one. Voting outside of it and being able to see clearly in the heat of a big political moment like a presidential election is no small feat. Mm-hmm. And I think I think a lot of people were blinded by it who are otherwise well-intentioned. Where does your dad live? Uh, he lives in Orange County. Can we go visit him? Yeah, we could. Frank. We have three quarters of a bottle of Glenlivet. Let's call 15. an Uber. Let's call an Uber. Let's get an Uber. He's home alone. My mom is uh, in Chicago right now with my sister who is, uh, her water just broke. She's pregnant with twin what girls. The- Fuck. Yeah. Shout out to my twin nieces in utero. 
Um, future twin nieces, twins. Yeah, that's what right. What the fuck? In Chicago? She's only 32 weeks, so they're trying to keep them uh, in. She's in the maternity ward, like yeah. on bed rest for like, you uh, know, the next two and a half holding weeks. Holding very still. Holding very still and like trying not to like these babies to like shoot out of her. Pregnancy is bizarre. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. It's, it's not for sissies. That's I what I always say. I don't get it. Yeah. Well. You know, I have a, I have very advanced scoliosis, so if I ever had that happen... <laughs> I wonder if my spine would be would be liquid enough that they could just fix it. You know, I will tell you this. Pregnancy does... I want to say like pregnancy. When a woman is pregnant, the body is flooded with all these like healing stuff. Like okay. Maybe that would... Maybe your spine would right itself. Are you a doctor? <laughs> I actually am. <laughs> uh, so let me ask you this. Mm. How does this end? This is what I ask everybody. I ask my Uber drivers this. <laughs> I ask my barber this. I ask people at work this. By the way, people, everyone I know, I think, is less interested in this shit than I am. In what shit? Oh, in life? Oh, no, in, in politics. <laughs> oh. I feel like oh. I feel like maybe I'm maximally obsessed to an unhealthy degree. And I had this, like, I've been on the roller coaster from when you were here for the holiday episode. Right. <laughs> One of the greatest experiences of your life. Absolutely. <laughs> You're welcome, by the way. Thank you. Uh you know, I think that was in the aftermath. It was a month. We were a month after the election. All of yeah. us were still sort of in trauma zone. And I, right around that time, I think unplugged and then got sort of like Zen slash self-righteous <laughs> about like not being engaged. Do you know what I'm saying? It was like, well, I don't even read the news anymore. Yeah, well, guess what? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I'll say this. I felt better. Mm-hmm, sure. I, I read... From late or mid to late November to February, like Valentine's Day, mm-hmm. I read like 50 books. Jesus. I went fucking nuts. <laughs> like I did not read the internet. I didn't read social media. I took it off my phone. What was your favorite books? Top three. Oh, God. I mean, I can look around here. Yeah. There's a number of books. I th- Oh, I liked uh, the Harvard Psychedelic Club by Don Latin, yeah. which is about, uh, it was about... God, what are the guys' names? It's about Timothy Leary mm-hmm. and, um, God, who, my brain is so gone right now. But it's Timothy Leary, and then who was the other guy? Oh, Ram Dass. Okay. Okay, so Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary, who were fired from Harvard in the 60s mm-hmm. for giving LSD to undergraduates. Salute. That is That is my daughter's uh, wand from it, The Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Great, okay. Yeah. So okay, so that book. What a two more. But I want to I want to complete this thought because it's important. Okay. Is that the Harvard Psychedelic Club with uh, Richard Alpert and um, Timothy Leary? You know, that's the part of the history that I knew, and I always knew, like in some back corner of my mind, like oh yeah, like Leary and Alpert were fired from Harvard for giving acid to their undergraduate students or whatever. Mm-hmm. What I didn't know is that Andrew Weil who is the health food guru with the beard from Tucson, oh, Arizona. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, like the dude who's yeah. like, he's got like the natural food spa uh-huh. and like, you know, holistic healing center or whatever. He's the bald guy. He's made a mint. He's got restaurants called True Food Kitchen. He's yeah. got books. He's got the whole empire built. Right. He was at Harvard at the same time. He was an undergraduate who at the dawn of the psychedelic age was, you know, a bright guy, curious about this, wanted in 
his best buddy as an undergraduate was the scion of the Harry Winston diamond fortune. So this is like the kid in the dorms who was Mm -hmm. his buddy. Mm -hmm. And like, I think the Winston kid kind of got in to the club and got to do acid with Richard Alpert because Richard Alpert had a crush on him and Andrew Weil didn't get in. And in some kind of like bitter competitive thing, like reported it or wrote a story about it in the Harvard Crimson. He narked on them. He narked on them. And that's why Richard Alpert. Wow. I didn't know this. I had no idea. So that's why the book was so fascinating that's to me. That's interesting. So I read that. And then I was reading lots of books about um, psychedelia. And mm-hmm. I was reading about, uh, I was trying to read about the nexus between uh, physics and Buddhism. So, like, I have a book called The Tao of Physics. I have a book called Quantum Enigma, Beyond Biocentrism. Wow. And I was trying to think of... uh, I wanted to write a book about this to see if I could clarify it for myself. Mm -hmm. But the conclusion that I came to is that the book's already been written. Yeah. Do you ever have that? Oh, for sure. And do you just give up or do you say, well, I'll just write it anew for this new generation? I will write it anew. (laughs) In my case, it's been like, I am one year in and I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> yeah, you're like, you're like 18 months into like a tedious, like 60,000 60, word nightmare. And then you finally realize it's already been done. Have you ever read Ken Wilber? No, but the name rings a bell. Yeah, like he's like a, he's like a cosmic consciousness kind of guy. You might be into him. Yeah. I mean, he's I, like, here's the connection between all the world religions. And he has like a circle and you're that's like, it. I got it. I got, I got it. it. <laughs> you like cut it out of the book and you put it in your wallet. And See, that's what they find on you when that, you jump off the building. <laughs> that's what I wanted for myself and my readers. And oh. the problem is that I don't have, I don't have enough self-confidence or whatever it is <laughs> to like, I can't take myself as that person. Like I cannot be. You like, can't be Ken, Bo- Ken I, I can't. Yeah, I cannot. You're pres- not like, I am a spiritual fucking guru. Yeah, I'm a spiritual writer who I've got it and I'm going to present it to you. Like, I just. Hey, you know what we should do? <laughs> what? <laughs> I went to a three day silent retreat. Okay. Over, over New Year's. Yeah. How was it? It was fucking badass. I, where did you do it? At, uh, it was it was through Against the Stream in L.A. And yeah. we went out to we went out to Malibu. It was at this. Camp Shalom or whatever, this like Jewish I, camp in Malibu. If I could ever get away from my family for three days, yeah. I would do that with you in a heartbeat. Yeah. Anytime. I, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a meditator. Okay. I have been for years and it's I act- incredible. I actually really like it. Yeah. Like that doesn't sound bad to me. Yeah. It sounds delicious. And to you me. do the, you do the noble silence. So it's like, we wouldn't look at each other. No, you don't. Cause like that would ruin it. Right. Like, there's no communication. Yeah. Like, even though you're like sitting across we from someone at lunch. We could be next to each other. There was, there was a guy that, that I, that I met there who, who like knew me through some other thing. And he was like, oh my God, you're from this other thing. And I was like, you're here. And we sat next to each other for three days. What did you, what did you get out of it? What did I get out of it? Did you, let me ask you. Oh, okay. Let me, let me dial back. Okay. Did at any point you burst into tears? Yeah. Okay. For That's, sure. <laughs> I, I've talked to so many people who have done silent retreats and yeah. every, almost everyone has had that experience. 100%. Because you're alone with yourself mm-hmm. and you can't talk. Right. And even, and, and like, by the way, three days silent is a long fucking time Indeed. to be with yourself. Right. And you can't even like look at other people to be like, well, this is fucking weird. <laughs> or like whatever kind of third wall, fourth wall situation you want to do. Yeah. And like you eat meditatively, you right. like do a mindful eating thing. Um, Chew 30 times. Mm, 
And and then I was there when like for when the new year struck and like pe- we did like a a ceremony and everybody kind of said like the did Lee do it with you or did you go by yourself? No, I did it by myself. Okay, he I was, was gonna say yeah, he was in Texas with his kid and I was like, well, what do I do? And, right. And New Year's has always been like weird for me. I don't know. So it's always loaded. It was the perfect thing. It was incredible. And so it was in. Malibu. It was, in, it was in Malibu, but it was in this kind of like rundown kind of camp situation. It was really cold. E- every morning, six in the morning, someone would ring this gong for us to get up. I was in this weird like bunk bed situation where there were 12 bunk beds, but only two other women uh, because it wasn't very well populated. But but so the gong would ring at 6 a.m. and the, the woman across from me in the bunk bed would hit the hit the deck and start praying to whatever God she believed in. Oh and it was God. like, motherfucker, I love I'm that. in it. It's real. <laughs> it was real. See, I love this. And I think that like, like, see, this is where religion or spirituality or whatever makes sense to me is like, let's be quiet for let's three days. Be quiet. Let's communicate with our God. Let's com- or communicate with ourselves. Yeah. Like you can't, cause I, it's interesting today I was at work and I was talking to uh, one of my colleagues mm-hmm. And my listeners are going to laugh about this, but we were talking about the Appalachian Trail, which I've talked about ad nauseum. It's the one cool thing I ever did in my life. And you walked I, the whole thing? No, I walked 1,100 miles. That's incredible. Yeah. That's why I talk about it. That's oh, only, I see. Yeah. That makes <laughs> it's my sense. only good story. Right. Well. But it came up. Uh, it was like, what did you do after college? Blah, blah, blah. And he said, what, do you, what did you learn from it? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I feel bad about the answer because I was like, you know what? I think I, I learned how to meditate. And he kind of, he kind of looked mm-hmm. at me like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> but I was just like, like, it was like being in solitary, mm-hmm. which is what meditation is like. Right. You're just with yourself and you're talking to yourself and you're reliving and relitigating all of your memories and regrets and you're projecting all of your fear. You know, like you're just trapped inside yourself. There's yeah, no and one. You're to- like, you're doing that, but then you're kind of returning to just like your bodily function, like the breath. That you know? too. That yeah. too. And like, like I'm tired. Yeah. I'm thirsty. Mm-hmm. Look, oh my God, these flowers are beautiful. And mm-hmm. look at this forest. And like, that was it. And, and, you know, over the course of time, it's not like I became like some sort of uh, enlightened being or anything, but it just, it softened me a little bit and it made me uh, more comfortable being inward and a little bit more still than I think I would have otherwise been at the age of 21 or 22 or whatever. I guess it, it, when I, when I went into the retreat, I was thinking I, you know, I have the, I have the spine thing. It hurts to sit for too long. I'm going to just see what it feels like to try and do it. I didn't realize how much sitting was required. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, but then on the other side of it, it was just the, the just the idea that like oh i can sit for half an hour 15 minutes half an hour an hour a day i mean i can sit for seven hours a day yeah <laughs> that's and, what and, i learned and it, it uh like sitting for a long time in meditation for me if i can ever have the time is it feels delicious it feels mm-hmm. like i feel like i've slept it feels mm-hmm. like waking up from like a beautiful nap yeah and i'm not a good i'm not a person who can nap so mm-hmm. like for me it's like oh i love doing that when i can because when I come out of it, I feel like I've really, like, uh, I always call it like brushing, it's like brushing your teeth, you know, it's like brushing your brain's teeth or something, mm, you know, like. That's a very cool image. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. But it's, it's, you know, it's like that. It's like. It's like um, brain covered in teeth. It's like <laughs> brushing a brush over it. It's very delicious. Yeah. It's hygiene. Sure. It's hygiene. And mm. uh, yet, 
as I say that, it's still hard for me to get myself to sit down. Like, do you sit on a regular basis after that? Or is that just something you did for a weekend over the new year? Yeah, I try to. I, I guess I do it a couple times a week. And, and it was very much like, I'm going to do this every day. And, and it's just sort of like doing it, still doing it when I can. But writing is, but writing itself Mm-hmm. is the same i mean sitting in the chair sure. holding still mm-hmm. facing your brain yeah it's the same basic mechanics similar idea yeah and right. you can do that i can do that and uh i mean we we can't do the i mean it's like it's like there's only so many hours a day in a day and there's only so many hours a person can write like how many hours a day can one spend in con, you know contemplative <laughs> inward <laughs> you know <laughs> I won't tell you what gesture Amelia just made. It was just about craft. Okay. It was about the the intricacies of the form. So let me ask you this. Mm. I don't think we got an answer. Where does this end? Where do we go in the current moment that we're in? And am I exaggerating the moment to say that like, I mean, this is really the primary thing that I've been thinking about since Mm -hmm. election day. Uh, I tweeted the other day, like I was hiking on Saturday. It was the most beautiful day, beautiful hike. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a hike in Southern California with tree cover, which is rare because mm. you're usually exposed in Where the desert. It? it was down in Orange County. Oh. And I tweeted this like beautiful section of the hike where I'm like crossing a little bridge. And because we've actually had rain this year, there's like a creek mm-hmm. and uh, it's just gorgeous. There's wildflowers. Mm-hmm. And I tweeted this little like 30 second video and I wrote like, thinking about Trump, (laughs) (laughs) which is like the way that it's been for me. Like every single situation in some way is tainted by my thinking about like, is he going to fucking launch a nuke at North Korea? Is he going to, you know, like, is he going to consolidate power and corrupt the uh, law enforcement uh, agencies? Like our institutions going to hold, is this the end? You know, like where does it end? Like, are we going to get out of this without him ruining the country? Right. I mean, the wheel turns, right? One hopes. One hopes. And and like one hopes in like the right direction. Well, yeah. I mean, I at the again kind of returning, I guess, because it's at the front of my mind to the to the community coalition meeting that I went to and the sort of group therapy thing. Um, I need that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yeah, dude. <laughs> you do. No, I mean, it was it was just good to kind of like look at people and talk to people. There's an there's an there's an older black woman in our kind of little circle and, 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 and the question was kind of like, where, where does it go? You Uh know? And she was like, I don't know. You know, I lived through Reagan. I lived through like both riots, like things change. Right. You know, it'll be fine. And it it was just very much like a sense of like things, things have been, one things have been very bad for a lot of people for a long time right. in a way that that you and I as white people don't get exactly and, and and you know like Reagan actively tried to kill gay people <laughs> like, yeah pretty pretty actively um, and just like turned um like like it was like they he defunded all of these uh mental hospitals and yeah. just turned loose all these mentally ill people into the street like just dumped them into the street. Where? What's that about? I don't know about that. Yeah. Like that. This is something that happened during the Reagan administration. I mean, I don't, I don't put past them, but, but you know, there's the, the, the wheel turns on kind of our, our, our self regard and our national regard and our like illusion of what's, what's happening. And I think that this is an opportunity, you know, to, 
to say like, okay, like we, we kind of see th- in seeing how fucked things are, like we get an opportunity to see things as they are for just a brief moment yeah. um, before the like politics change and the narrative, the fucking optics change or whatever. And we're, we're back underwater. Right. Um, but here's a chance to be like, okay, like Obama's deportation policies were fucked <laughs> and, right. and they sowed the seeds for what, for the, you know, the fruits we're enjoying today. So, and, and healthcare was a victory, but a very incomplete victory. Right. And uh, drone policy, mm. while maybe like tactically astute, is a very slippery slope yeah. if you have a president who's not of sound mind right. and decent intentions. I mean, the pendulum swings, the wheel turns, but I think regardless how it, how it ends is us, you know, either either taking the opportunity and making, you know, something of it um, in our own minds. And I think it's a really individual process rather than a collective process um, or just riding, riding the wheel and then, and then going back to where it feels good and then feeling okay for a little while. And then, and then feeling uncomfortable again, probably when you and I are about 50 or 60 yeah. and I think, well, but I think is, either way we die. So no, I think about this know. all the time. There are very smart people that I know in my life. Who are they? Like just people that in top the, five. Top just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but you know, like writers that I know yeah. who I can tell by virtue of their Twitter feed. Yeah. <laughs> Amelia's pointing to herself. <laughs> who, who just have absolutely zero political engagement. Oh. <laughs> almost <laughs> as an almost as an intellectual stance. Like I'm not engaging with this. This is not right. something I'm gonna I'm gonna bother myself with. And I almost sometimes I can catch myself thinking like do they, they know more than I do. Like they're smarter than I, they're yeah. not dealing with this bullshit and getting all wound up and like, and then there's other times where I'm like the fact that you're not like, how could you not be engaged with what's happening right, right. now? Like we have an obligation as citizens and like I go back and forth on it, right. but it does make me wonder if the smarter tact is to just, or the smarter tack is to just be like, uh, yeah, I, I can't do anything about it, it, it directly. I'm just going to make my art and let the wheel turn and 50 years from now it'll turn again and I'm going to be dead and fuck it. I mean, some awareness of that, but this is like Aurelius. It's like, it's like live a good and honest life, like live kind of to the best of your abilities, like be a good person and like whatever falls out of that is, is whatever it is. And it's like, if being a good person means like looking at education or looking climate or looking at immigration and, um, and then you die and then, you know, the people, you know, the people who read you will, who read your work will die. And, and like, like that kind of the, the like fake legacy idea dies. And, but, but you had some, I don't know, you lived a good life when you were around. I think your actions, like we are, like, it's like the, uh, the Sartre, uh, John Paul Sartre, not to get like precious, but it was like, we are the sum of our actions Yeah. and those actions continue, whatever they happen to be, like mm-hmm. whether it's the thoughts that you generate or the speech that you generate or the writing that you generate or the art that you make or everything. Mm-hmm. Like somehow that continues. Or as the Girl Scouts say, make the campsite a little bit better than how you found it. <laughs> right. You know? And if that means like finding a Hershey wrapper and crumbling it up and putting it in your pocket, then do that. Don't fucking do that. Jesus. So how does it end? I thought I said... <laughs> does it end? Does it end well? Um, the hmm. wheel just turns. Do we feel more pain than we've already felt? Yeah. Or, is it or have we already <laughs> passed? Already passed this is an interesting pain. question just right. to bring everything full circle right. in terms of our citizenship. Mm. Like you and I are roughly the same age. You're a bit younger than I. How dare you? <laughs> but I mean like within a decade, sure. 
uh, have, is this, cause like I thought when George W. Bush was president, I was like, well, we are in the dark times. Wow. Like this is, I mean, nine 11, we're launching a war against a country that didn't even attack us and mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of people are dying. And right. they're going to, they're talking about a mushroom cloud and a smoking gun. And like, I was just like, this is as fucked up as it can get. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was upside down to me. All right. And this dwarfs it. This makes George W. Bush look like Gandhi. Like, you I know mean, I'm... well, we haven't we haven't launched a full on war yet. Yet, but mm, yeah, I mean, there's a there the that's the groundwork is being laid probably as we speak. But does it end with Trump getting impeached? Oh, I th- I think so. I think so. Yeah. Sooner I, than later. Um, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think Pence is kind of like, he's the politician we really didn't want yeah. to have in office. So that's an additional fucking weird ass. I think of... he's going down too. Oh, I'm deep Twitter. Oh, I believe in president or in hatch. You got that thing here. Yeah. Just... <laughs> I'm so easy. I'm so easy to persuade. I'm just like, please, just let it all. I want them all to go down. No, I mean, I feel like I'll tell you. I'll tell you who the the politician we really don't want. The sinkhole is the sinkhole in front of Mar-a-Lago because of the orb. That's where I'm at. That fucking orb. Which, by the way, is a globe. Did you know that that orb is a globe? I saw that. Yeah, yeah. I saw. I saw South America. It's so like, I mean, oh, that makes wow. it doubly creepy. I mean, but the politician in my mind. But wait, why did Melania bat his hand away? Because there, I have a friend in Los Angeles who I trust implicitly, okay. who works in. Uh, I, I can't say it specifically because I don't want to incriminate. But works, Sephora. Yeah, he works at Sephora. He's a <laughs> he's a makeup magician, ladies. Uh, love it. Um, but no, he uh, he works in a field that would give him proximity to the kind of people who would know. Yeah. And he said that had Trump lost the election, he and Melania would have announced their divorce day after. Uh, Doesn't surprise me at all. I've also been reading on deep Twitter that Trump, because of the prenups that he signs with his various wives. Yeah would have wanted to file for divorce with her in, I believe, 2015 prior to the 10-year mark Uh because that means he would have to pay less. But that he has her, like, you know, because they have Baron together, because she signed NDAs. She loves Baron, I think. Yeah, I do too. And, like, you know, I don't think she's a saint. I think she sort of knew what she was getting into to a degree. So I don't want to, like, deify her by any means. No, no, no. But anybody married to him is deserving of my sympathy in a way. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, when I looked at that video today, there was somebody on Twitter who was like, I think they're giving each other a high five. <laughs> but, I wonder if I, I legitimately wonder if she had been briefed to that, that like kind of physical contact in Saudi Arabia was was verboten or something and that maybe that was it. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, it just, I, I just feel like she's trying to do her best with a limited set of resources. And I think too, like the, I just, the writing's on the wall. Like she can't stand him. He's yeah. the, they don't live together. She's in New York. Yeah. It's him. I mean, like, how could you possibly, right. He's not a, like, she's probably flipping off the TV as well. And she, yeah. But and also she's clearly a nightmare. She's clear. She's, she's not a saint. She's yeah. not like some, like, she's not like Katie Holmes, you know, like, Oh my God. Katie Holmes is, Katie is a saint Holmes up too. Like secret I, Jamie Foxx dating. Can we transition this gently into celebrity gossip? <laughs> because Katie Holmes, Jamie Foxx are an adorable couple. And they're they adorable. And she's living her best life. And like, I, they can't... broke up. Did they? Yeah. 
No. Yes. Oh, my God. Now what? I just fell sideways off of my chair almost. He's done. I didn't know that they broke up. Yeah. I like I have, you know, and I did this too. Like I had this thing. I don't, I, I can get carried away with celebrities that I decide I really love. And like, I went through this phase on this podcast where I was like so deep into Gwen Stefani and I thought she had like the perfect life. Oh, she was the perfect pop star. And then it was and like, Gavin has this wonderful, incredibly, <laughs> incredibly sexy gender fluidity. Yeah, right. And I was like, God, I was like, no, got- wait, hold up. Gen- Gavin Rossdale is the sexiest man alive. And I knew this when I was 12 years old and I know it now Yeah, because he doesn't give a fuck. No, <laughs> I heard him on Howard Stern. He was so convincing to me. <sighs> He was like, it's so hard when you're in the tabloids and people are trying to make you a marriage. And they're like, yeah, whatever he, however he talks. Whatever. And he was fucking the nanny. He's fucking the nanny. I mean, but also he's fucking whoever. I surely they had an arrangement. They're the most beautiful people on the face of the earth. Yeah. I remember vividly my sexual awakening to Gavin Rossdale. (laughs) (laughs) He is a beautiful man. Ah! Yeah. And the fluidity. Yeah. The fluidity. Yeah, and there's something to that. There's something kind of fluid about Gwen too. You but know? you're, yeah, but you're into Gwen, and now she she's doing the Blake Shelton thing. And, and like that doesn't that kind of bums me out. And like by the way, I want to make it clear that I she should not be penalized for the indiscretions of her former husband. But I think the point that I'm trying to make is just that like it's a it's a commentary about my own idealism and my tendency to want to idealize certain celebrities. Yeah, you know what I'm oh, saying? Sure, sure. I was like, she's. I felt like she was underrated. Right. I still think she, like, as a musician, she's underrated. She's incredible. She embodies something about Southern California that I respond to because I uh, live here. Yeah. Like, you know, yes, you tragic know, kingdom, Yeah, bitch. yeah. You know, like, <laughs> like, I don't think people can like, it's sort of like how, like, unless you've lived in Indiana, you can't fully appreciate John Mellencamp. Like, uh, and I live there. So like, it's okay. sort of, it reson- <laughs> yeah, it's not as, not as resonant for you. But like, listen, I'm telling you, when you spent like eight winters in central Indiana, like something about that music. I feel like, I feel like like there's an album called Eight Winters in Central Indiana. I'm going to write it. It's my next career. Since I finish this podcast. uh, I've got the microphones. You and Bonnie Bear. (laughs) Right. Um, Fucking Tragic Kingdom. It's great. Holy shit. That music makes me like that music as pop music makes me very happy and feels like it's like it feels it feels like sunshine to me. Uh, It's everything. I just realized I need to be in karaoke lounges every week singing (laughs) Tragic Kingdom, the secret song on Tragic Kingdom, every track of Tragic Kingdom. I just had this huge ass boombox that I listened to the entirety of Tragic Kingdom, the entirety of Bex Odelay. The entirety of Bush, um, which I mean, true sadness that I was not on Twitter as a teen to like stand for Gavin and Gwen when they got together because holy shit, because Gwen was dating the like the guy in the band. Right. But I like wasn't really aware because the internet, I had this text based internet called links. Um, that I pretty much just used to talk to guys from Trinidad and Tobago. <laughs> but, <laughs> Which, but who were among the earliest adopters of links. And of the podcast. Yes. Friends of the pod. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, man, those three things. And then Everclear's um, so much for the afterglow. Yeah. yeah Bex Odelay was big for me. Bex Odelay. Great album. I wrote a whole book to uh, Sea Change. I love... See... I, I like to talk about Beck because I think that he gets discarded in my own mind even sometimes for the Scientology thing. Uh, it's a drag. 
but he's fantastic. He's fantastic. He's a true great. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that in the modern music uh, climate or the modern art climate, where we say pantheon, the, <laughs> but I mean, what I mean by this is like, you know, people don't buy albums anymore. They buy tracks. Everybody can put their album up on the internet. Uh, things aren't the same way that they used to be for rock stars. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, the the guys like uh, Tom Petty and the Eagles and also, David Bowie yeah, and mm-hmm. Prince and Michael, you know, like those guys came up and like albums were selling for like twenty bucks a pop mm-hmm. and like you were a real and like Beck I think gets more lost than he otherwise would have been in a different generation as like a truly superb songwriter and a guy who oh um, and because he makes like a complete collection kind yes, of thing his yes. album like Sea Change is like a a whole thing. Uh, sea Change is a beautiful album. Ugh. You know, I, I still listen to it. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, but he's a guy that I really responded to in my twenties. What's he doing now? He's still making music, but that's 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 the whole point. Yeah, is that people ask that question? What's Beck doing? Mm-hmm. I think Beck's probably relaxing. He's got kids now, and he's like maybe not. He's a, got kids. Yeah, he's got like two kids. I think. Huh. His son's name is Cosimo. What? <laughs> I know that. <laughs> or Cosimo or something like that. Nobody knows. Yeah, I knew that. But he lives, I mean, he, he, he's relatively quiet and I mean... I see Moby at his vegan restaurant. Do you? Yeah, Little Pine. Moby's a, uh, that's like, that's a popular place. Doesn't he have like a nightclub too? Oh, probably. But Moby, uh, I, lo- I love Moby. Moby has been, the thing I like about Moby <laughs> mm-hmm. is that Moby has been Moby as long as I've known of you him. You know what? Moby is unapologetically that, Moby. That's what I'm saying. Like he, he, and I appreciate that. I do too. Cause sometimes I'm like, bah, I'm like a funny person on Twitter or like, bah, I'm a serious writer. I wrote a novel. That is Thor Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like fucking Moby. He's a constant. He just did it. He just did He's it. He's like, I make a music that's like, yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. And it's just there's nothing in between. I also make wonderful vegan food. And he went, I also show up at parties in East Hollywood. And just does it. I don't drink alcohol. Yeah. I'm a vegan. That's it. I have beautiful skin. Yeah. My name is fucking Moby. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. He has been him ever since I've been conscious of him and he's never deviated. No. And I respect people like that because he's for, he, for fucking real though. Yeah. He's a smart guy. Yeah. I don't think he's, uh, you know, I think he's a voice worth listening to. If you're going to have to pick some from right. the firmament, you know, well, there's just some, there's something that people fear, which is, which is, you know, their own, I don't know, obsolescence. Is that a word? Yeah, that is a word. Absolutely. Like people... Like contrarian. (laughs) (laughs) People fear, you know, you, you, you want to say like, I, uh, I want to write the, I want to write the right thing. I want to, I want to do or say the right thing. I want to give like these ideas, the platform. I want to, I want to do it right. Yeah. I think that's a very common fear. Yeah. You know, I have that. Who doesn't? Right. You know, I, I was at a Q and a, um, I, I was 20 years old and I was at a reading, John Edgar Wideman, who's one of our greatest living writers, was doing a reading and, and it was at Arizona State University, um, a public college. And, and he did this reading and 
everyone started asking him questions and it was sort of like, what do you do? Like, when do you write? What time do you write? How do you get your ideas? What do you think about? Like when you edit, like, or, or like, what does your editor say? And so he was kind of gamely answering all these questions. And then, and then after the umpteenth million question in that vein, he kind of stops and he goes, you guys are all asking the same thing, which is, can I do this? And the answer is yes. And there was just something, <laughs> something in me, in like 20-year-old Amelia Gray, that just completely relaxed into it. That was just like, oh, like I can do it. Oh. And it was just, I don't, I don't know. That's interesting. That's like an early epiphany. Right. It was an early epiphany. And it's held. Absolutely. Yeah. Just the, the sort of the sort of permission, I guess, or the, or the confidence or the just feeling for a second, like you don't, there's not some like labyrinth that you have to kind of figure out to get to the center of it. And then like, you don't have to like go be in New York for six months or 20 years or whatever. Like there's, you just like, you can do it. Uh You can do it. Yeah. And, and whatever. And, and that it, you know, is, is the, it's just like, like getting cl- as close as you can to what whatever it is that you have to say and then just getting it out. Yeah. How does it end? <laughs> <laughs> the wheel turns. The wheel turns. The wheel turns. Trump and, gets impeached. Um oh, y- yeah, I think so. I think that I think that the downside for him of a guy who's not really used to politics or Washington is that he just sort of said whatever for a couple months and that was a mistake and i think that'll bite that'll him. that'll bite him that'll end with him getting impeached i think that pence is a smarter politician so he'll stick around if he if he survives the deep twitter scandals that's currently yeah em- em- embroil him i think he'll probably be okay he's been fucking up indiana for a while now and... what who, who do you do you have any uh political heroes who you hope will ascend like, are, are there anybody, is there anybody out there that you're thinking like this person is really, uh, presenting himself or herself well during this whole time. And I mm-hmm. hope that they run in 2020. Oh, wow. I mean, that's a big one. I, I would like to do a heavy caveat on Eric Garcetti, our mayor. Yeah. Um, I think Eric Garcetti is a really smart politician. He's playing a really smart political game. I think he has a lot of heart for the people of Los Angeles in a very real way. And I think the immigrant population as well. He's Um, Mexican or part Mexican. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know what I'm saying? Like he's got, uh, an interesting heritage and is like a born and bred Los Angelino. Right. And he's a really smart guy. Yeah. Um, do you know him? No. Oh, okay. But, but I just, it's, it's sort of like dealing with him on a social media level for the different like coalitions or whatever that I, that I work with, but, but it's like, you know, if Garcetti could really kind of go towards what, uh, if he could really find what he like, go to, back towards what he believes in. I really have a lot of optimism and heart for Eric Garcetti. He looks the part. Sure. And, and he's young and he's right. got like a good brain on him. He's smart guy. And, uh, I, th- I, I, I have this theory. I don't know what's going to unfold. But like, I really have a lot of pride in being from California at this particular moment in yeah. American history, because I really do feel like 
California in its current political iteration is the antithesis of what's happening in the White House and is the the sort of spearhead of the resistance. Like, and I think of guys like Ted Lieu. I think of guys like Adam Schiff. Schiff. I think of Jerry Brown. Schiff is my congressman. Mine too. Oh. And I think he's acquitted himself very well. Yeah. Like, like, and I think he's going to run. Oh, this is my whole point. I could see that. Is that I think the state of California, Kamala Harris. Ah, love her. Yeah. So it's like Kamala Harris, Ted Lieu, Adam Schiff could all be on the dais. Is that how you pronounce that word? Yeah. The dais? Yeah. They could all be running for president in 2020 for the Democratic nomination. Wow. I think that uh, because Trump has shattered the permission structure for who gets to run for president sure. and when and why, yeah. I think Is that... Is Schiff old enough? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm also, you have to be 40. Oh. And he's at least 40. He's 35, I think. Maybe even, yeah. yeah. So I think Schiff, Ted Lieu, Kamala Harris... I think Gavin Newsom, who will run for governor in 2018, mm. could throw his name in the hat in 2020. Mm-hmm. And here, the reason why is that I think Obama proved this, is that Obama was asking uh, colleagues of his in the Senate if it was too early for him to run. And I remember reading a news story where Dick Durbin said to him, listen, there's a groundswell around you. Mm-hmm. Like, it, you, you, this isn't going to happen again. You take the wave, yeah. You take the wave. Right. And George W. Bush, after this eight-year presidency, like, this is the time. Like, whoever, like, any Democrat, practically, who would have won the nomination in 2008 was had a very good chance of winning the White House. Yeah. And I think that... I could see Kamala Harris. I mean, I think that whoever the Democrats put up in 2020, assuming that there are free and fair elections without, like, crazy, you know, hacking and... Sure. You know, which now, unfortunately, is a possibility in our politics. I think that that person would have a very decent chance of winning. And I think that it's going to create a lot of interest in that nomination. And I think that California is going to produce, because of its position as uh, the sort of tip of the spear for the resistance, or at least like an an example of a state in the union that is not uh, doing things according to Trump, dumbly <laughs> that it will produce many candidates. Although New York state passed universal representation and we would be following New York state in that, in yeah. that element. Yeah. You know? Well, New York state also passed uh, didn't they pass free college? Oh. They passed like free tuition for college for at least some income brackets or whatever, but it's like New York state, the state of California. Yeah. we got to represent. And I think like, you know, we have a single payer coming up in our state Congress. And it's going to be interesting to see how that does because, mm-hmm. you know, Trump's trying to like pop the balloon on healthcare for everybody. And it's like, it's, you know, there has to be, I feel like there has to be some pushback on that. That really, that one really bothers me. Healthcare. Ugh. It's bizarre. I mean, I have, yeah, I have a kid with disabilities and right. it's like, this motherfucker is trying to like cut Medicare, cut or cut Medicaid, cut Social Security. He's not trying to cut Medicare because older people vote for him. Right. But in this current budget, it's like slash Social Security, slash Medicaid, people with disabilities, fuck you. Right. And not that this budget is necessarily going to get passed, but any budget that is proposed is a moral document. And like, it's just abhorrent to me that somebody would say like, yeah, this is okay. This is fine. This is what we're going to do. To look at it and be like, this is fine. He doesn't even look at it. Mm. So, Amelia. Mm. You're uh, great to come over here. I'm so happy for you and your new book, Isadora. You're one of the most gifted writers I know, and I'm, and I uh, I wish you all the very best. 
And I guess uh, we'll just have to look forward to your fourth visit on the podcast at some point in the not-too-distant future. I mean, unless I die, knock on wood. (laughs) All right, folks, there you go. That is Amelia Gray. Her new novel is called Isadora, available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. You can find her online at ameliagray.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle over there is at GrayAmelia. Always fun talking with her. You may have heard her in the background, or not even in the background, in the foreground and the background of this past year's holiday episode, which we discussed briefly in our conversation. She has also made two previous appearances as the featured guest on this podcast. She's a great talent and uh, just a lovely friend. So, Walter, what else can I say about my buddy Walter? I'll tell you this. When we first got Walter, we lived in a duplex in the upper, on the, on the top floor of a, of a duplex. You know, there's like a lower and an upper unit. We lived in the upper unit on the second floor. And there was a deck off of the back of it on the second floor and then there were wooden stairs that led down to the backyard and my office back in those days was in that little room next to the deck and the stairs and it looked out on the backyard and in the backyard there was a fig tree and in the summer when the figs would bloom and then fall to the ground, we would get a lot of flies. (laughs) But that's not why I'm telling you this. The point is that I used to sit in that room and write, and I would sometimes, when I was uh, experiencing a lull, stand up and go to the door and walk out onto the deck and look down. And Walter was like a puppy back then. He was about, you know, he was less than a year old, a year old in, in his youth. And the fig tree was sort of in the dead center of the backyard. And I would look down there and he would be running at top speed, just sprinting in a circle around that fig tree for no reason. (laughs) Just because he wanted to, because it was fun. And that's how I, I will remember Walter. In a dead sprint for no reason, running in a circle around a tree covered in flies. (laughs) 